0: Last week we asked the question, who is a murderer? Who is a murderer? So last week we learned that we're all guilty of murder by God's definition of murder. God's definition of some sins and our definition of some sins, not always the same thing. So it's not just about taking someone's life in God's definition. It is the issue of hatred and anger in your heart. In God's plan, in his definition of sin, the same demand and punishment goes for one who is angry as one who takes a life. So we see an incredible picture here. We're beginning to tie in more and more to the real holiness of God that we probably haven't thought about enough. And so all of these things that are in our hearts uh, anger and frustration and vengeance and resentment all of those things come under God's category of murder that's what's in the heart so not only are we not to harbor murder and evil in our hearts we also should take positive steps to put ourselves right with others which is what we looked like in the last part of that uh, last week um Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the supreme court and whosoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go to fiery hell. Here's the positive thing. If therefore... You are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So he says there are going to be positive things that we're going to do. And so we're going to make an effort to right ourselves with others. Um, We are in danger of doing certain religious and ceremonial things to try to cover up our sin try to cover our moral failure. You know, if I have a moral failure on Saturday night, I want to get up and go to church on Sunday. And so that's part of what he's dealing with here. And so they were avoiding a twinge of conscience by saying, well, I went to the altar today, or I went to worship today, or I gave my gift at the altar today. So we have that same tendency sometimes when we want to get busy with good things while we're not really dealing with our sin there's something about it that just makes us feel better because then we try to balance evil with good well what he's saying is in the sight of God there is no value whatsoever in a performance of worship if we are harboring known sin might as well stay at home okay if you're coming to worship and so just remember the psalm that says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I'm not dealing with the sin in my heart, that interrupts my fellowship with the Lord. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two. 22. Um, this is a good one. You can jot this down and look at it later. Hath the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. So if we're not dealing with a sin in our hearts, and we're not walking in obedience. We don't need to worry a whole lot about how often we come to church or how, how much money we give, you know, whether we time. So Jesus is giving a list of six illustrations of where the scribes and Pharisees were always guilty. They were guilty of reducing the meaning of God's law so that they could accomplish it. So they were just rewriting God's law so that it was convenient for them so that they could perform it and feel good about themselves. So that's all they were worried about. They were not worried about what God thought about it. They just wanted to be happy and successful. And so by reducing God's standard, they could feel good about themselves. They could persuade themselves that they were righteous and that all was well. But they weren't just doing that to themselves they were teaching it to everybody else they were saying look this is all you have to do here's the law they didn't say we wrote this they said this is what God wants you to do and you'll be righteous if you do this so Jesus is exposing that fallacy he's exposing the wrong teaching well so number one was murder number two is adultery look at verse 27 You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that not, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it away from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than if for your whole body to be thrown into hell and if your right hand makes you stumble cut it off and throw it away from you for it is better that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go to hell so tradition had taught them that if you did not commit adultery you were righteous. So again, they're reducing God's heart, God's standard for something that they felt like they could keep. And so again, Jesus is saying, your standard is too low. The scribes and the Pharisees had reduced it. Now, they have redefined adultery here for it to just be the physical act. And so as long as you could do that, they were saying you could do anything else and still be righteous. So they saw themselves as innocent, as long as they were not guilty of the act itself. But God is concerned with, what have we learned so far? The heart. God is concerned with the attitude behind the act. Now, look at verse 28, and let me show you something. Verse 28. <clears throat> but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman. Now that's an interesting word. In the Greek, uh, it is in the present tense. And so what it really implies is this continual looking, this keeping on looking. So adultery begins with a look. You know, I've talked to some folks who have gotten tied up in pornography and I'm fascinated that that's the answer. How did you start? It was an accident. It was a look. And so what happens then is that thought continues. And instead of bringing that thought under submission to God, it just continues. So it becomes a thought that is cherished rather than one that is tossed away. When the mind is not being brought under the Holy Spirit under the leadership of God and his word. So then in verse 29, Jesus gives a solution. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out. If your right arm is your problem, cut it off. And so what he's basically saying is, you be ready to get rid of anything that would cause you to sin. If you're really, really serious about getting rid of the pornography in your life, you may have to throw out the computer. You may have to throw out the TV. But Jesus is saying, whatever you do, do not put yourself in a position of vulnerability. Whatever is inclined to make you trip up, whatever is inclined to make you sin, get rid of it. So to these self-righteous people, these are people who thought they were getting it right. They thought they were good, good with God. And so Jesus is saying, if you have ever lusted, if you have ever desired to commit adultery, you're not righteous. You're not righteous. You are a sinner. Now, remember, that's really the foundation for this whole section through here. All the Sermon on the Mount is telling the Pharisees that they think they're righteous, but they're not. Because they're not living by God's standards. But they thought they were okay. And Jesus is saying, you're not okay. So Jesus condemns this very lustful desire. Where does that take place? In the heart. So over and over, what's he saying? God looketh upon the heart. God looks upon the heart, not only the act of adultery. But then he continues with the third illustration, which is divorce. Number 31, verse 31. And it was said, this is what they had been hearing, this is what the Pharisees were teaching, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity or immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery now this is a topic on which we could spend weeks okay Um, let's try to just get a perspective of what he is trying to get across here in the sermon on the mount um, because he is addressing the pharisees he is telling them that their standard of righteousness is not nearly as high as God's standard of righteousness. But to just kind of give you an overall picture, and let's see if we can wrap some minds around this, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, the man, and he slept. And then God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at the place. Now, I don't know if you want to do this or not. I wrote prime rib in the margin of my Bible right there. Verse 22, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. The the Hebrew is isha, isha, and it literally means life giver. She shall be called isha, life giver, because she was taken out of ish, okay? Okay? Verse 24, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that is the origin of marriage. That's the origin of marriage. And so here, God created what is the basic relationship for humanity. One man, one woman married for life. It's a simple truth. It's the holiness of God. It's far beyond anything we can reach or that we have reached. So all through the Bible, understand, if you need to say this to anybody, there's not a place in the Bible where the sanctity of marriage is not upheld. It's there. You cannot deny it. So marriage is even used in the Bible as an analogy for God's relationship to Israel And for Christ's relationship to the church. Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. God is the husband. Israel is the wife. So what he's giving us here is God's perfect plan. But we all know that that was given before the fall. Okay? We know that there was dramatic change when sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit. And so when sin came into the world. It affected everything. I don't know that we'll know until we get to heaven. Or even if we'll know then. How much happened. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. What was set in motion. The sin that was set in, set in motion. So it affected mankind's nature. It affected our conduct. It affected woman's nature. It affected a woman's conduct. And consequently, their relationship in marriage was also affected. So everything in the universe became corrupted when sin entered the world. It was corrupted to one degree or another. It's been that way ever since Genesis. So God has not changed his standard in malachi chapter 3 and verse 16 god says i hate divorce so let's grasp god's ideal is that he has a divine ideal and that divine ideal that god had in mind in genesis 2 has never changed marriage has been corrupted by the fall marriage has been corrupted by sin But the fact that it became corrupted did not change God's ideal. Okay? But there's also the reality of marital conflict. It's a part of life. Divorce in a fallen world is a reality. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so it falls short of God's ideal But what they're going to ask Jesus here is, is it ever acceptable? So it's like God had this ideal up here, and then sin came into the world, and everything got messed up, and now it's like, okay, now what do we do? Is there ever a time that, that, that you can divorce? What do you do? So turn to Matthew chapter 19 with me. Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus himself answers the question, is it ever acceptable? So Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. So some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? They just bring up the question. Is there any cause? Is there any reason for which we can divorce our wives? Well, the popular answer was what? Well, yeah. Now, in their minds, it was she burnt my toast. That's how, that's how careless they were, you know, with the divorce that was going on. And so they bought into that interpretation of Scripture because it was accommodating their sinful desires. I mean... A woman in that day could do the slightest little thing and he'd just throw her out. They wanted Jesus to say no because they wanted popular opinion to turn against Jesus. So they're testing him. They're trying to trap him. And so all Jesus does is quote scripture back to them. Look at verse 4. And he answered and said, Jesus answered and said, Have you not read, now these are Pharisees, do they know the Old Testament? Well, yeah. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave his wife and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Consequently, they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus just quotes scripture. And then comes a compelling question in verse 7. Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate certificate of divorce and send her away? Now here's what you need to be sure you understand. Moses never commanded that. It was never a command. Moses never did that. And so Moses never commanded divorce. He did not commend divorce. He did not condone divorce. But they, all of this time, as all of this teaching has been transferred down through the generations that was not taught according to the standard of God, they just all started thinking, well, so and so said Moses commanded that. I, I, I guess he did. So Moses, why did Moses command this? And he did not. It is not in scripture anywhere. Now, in the Old Testament, there were no grounds for divorce. What did God say? Can't divide it. There were no grounds for divorce. And you say, well, what about adultery? Well, let me tell you what. Adultery wasn't a reason for divorce because the adulterer was executed. So the spouse didn't become divorced, became widowed. So divorce was not an issue in the Old Testament because that's what they did. The penalty for adultery was execution, stoning. You see some of that in the New Testament where here come the Pharisees with a woman caught in adultery. We need to stone her. And Jesus said, what? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone so it didn't take long for it to be obvious to God to God's leaders that people were not going to obey God's law they weren't going to do it they weren't going to obey it in anything and that's the history of the Old Testament God gives the law the people don't obey continue to not obey teach others to not obey now look in verse 8 Matthew 19, verse 8, Jesus said to them, they said, why did Moses command it? Now, Jesus didn't correct that, and we're not going to take the time for me to show you that. Just understand, Moses never commanded that, okay? But Jesus just said to them, "Why, why did they do that? Why did they allow that? And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart. Moses, this Bible says, permitted. Is that what yours says? Not commanded. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it has not been this way and so Jesus basically is saying because you never would obey we had to do something God's law you would not obey God's law so Moses had to do something he permitted you So it was never God's original plan, but since the fall, how do you make life work? And so God just graciously and mercifully held back from killing every adulterer. Let me ask you a question. Today, if God were to come along and kill every adulterer, how many people would be left? So... There became a permissive point to this. Now, verse 9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So God does not recognize divorce except in the case of sexual misconduct in the marriage. So, in God's perfect plan, adultery would end a marriage by killing the adulterer. In God's merciful plan, God allows for divorce in the case of impenitent adultery to free the innocent party. Now, what that does is is that it protects the innocent party so that that innocent party didn't have to live like that the rest of his or her life nothing's to be accomplished by that so go back now to matthew 5 i don't know if i'm going to let you ask a question or not go for it it's not they they just use the two different adultery well depends on if you're talking about god's definition it can just be in your heart sexual immorality can be in your heart but it can also be an act an act okay so adultery and sexual immorality are the same thing except that adultery usually refers to married people the word fornication usually refers to people that are not married so they're really, there's really no difference there. So back to Matthew chapter 5 verse 31. Look what Jesus says. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of immorality or unchastity makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now there again, we could spend hours and hours and hours on this. In this culture, in this Bible culture, men generally held a very low view of women. Um, they believed that they had a right to divorce, and they wanted to be able to divorce them for just any reason. I'm serious about burning the toast. you know, whatever that you know, just just get her out of here. And so if he wanted to get rid of her for any reason, he did. And it was a situation that was grossly unfair to women because in that day, a single woman, a divorced woman, she couldn't take care of herself. It's such a different culture. So the only thing that mattered to these Pharisees was having a bill of divorcement. Well, we've got a bill of divorcement. Yeah, I kicked her out of the house because she didn't feed the cat, but I've got this paper here. And that's what they were leaning on. So they taught that divorce was valid for any and every reason. It was based on the traditions of men, not the word of God. And so the only thing that was necessary was to get your paperwork. Nothing else mattered. So that's the situation that Jesus is addressing. Few subjects have had as much confusion as this one. So many different things are taught about divorce. People have uh, come up with all of these varying opinions that they have bought into. And so for a long time, for a long time since Genesis 2, sin has muddled up the world so badly that it is sometimes hard for us to grasp the simplicity of what God said in the first place. Now, all of a sudden what we see is is the exceeding sinfulness of sin we've messed it up and we've continued to mess it up generation after generation after generation and it's continuing to to, to what's the word to fling on out there and get worse and worse and worse because today people are paying attention to adultery but they don't know that they're still held accountable to God's standard why do they not know it I don't know I don't know if they've not listened or if the churches are not preaching it but it ain't gonna work And so the whole thrust of this passage is to reveal that the Pharisees were adulterers in spite of how they felt about themselves. In spite of the fact that they claimed that they were righteous. So Jesus is ripping off the mask of their self-righteousness to reveal their real hearts. And he is explaining that divorce leads to adulterous relationships now <clears throat> he says you can claim that you're not adulterers but you're adulterers in your hearts and in your divorces and when you divorce it is inevitable that that person is going to get remarried so so much of the adultery is taking place in the remarriages and so they're letting the sin just spiral out of control because they're misinterpreting God's word. Now, Jesus says, don't come along and say we're righteous. We never commit adultery. Yes, you do. And you're causing other people to commit adultery. We've got to do this. Go to Mark. Go to Mark chapter 10. I'm going to hurry. Mark chapter 10, another gospel. And beginning in verse 4, and again, they're questioning Jesus, and they, the Pharisees, said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away, and Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this permission or this commandment, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house of the disciples... They begin questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. So when people enter into another union and they consummate that marriage, they enter into an adulterous relationship. Divorce leads to adultery because remarriage is inevitable why because the sin spiral is wounded down and down and down and we've gotten acclimated to it that's who we are that's just what we do That's what the world is Jesus never advocates divorce ever now there are a lot of what-ifs I know that we can talk about about that and y'all just need to sit around my house sometime we'll talk about it but he only admits there are a few times When divorce does not lead to adultery. There are times when divorce does not lead to adultery. There are times when you are the innocent party in a divorce. You've tried every way to reconcile, to forgive, to keep it together, and it just ain't happening. Then you are free to remarry, and it won't be adultery. But you can't get thrown out for burning the toast. See. So if sex sin that the the really the huge the huge foundational issue is adult is sex sin. If sex sin is not the cause, then you commit adultery when you remarry. So so much of the time it's not the divorce, it's the remarriage that sets it off. I had a conversation with this with Ron Jackson one time many of us loved Ron Jackson we were talking about it and I said what's the problem Ron and he said Sharon the problem is not there are too many divorces the problem is there are too many marriages and I've thought a lot about that and that's so true people getting married out of God's will not seeking the Lord's counsel not being willing to be unmarried um So what happens and and what our tendency is, and I'm going to close with this and you think about this. When we start playing with technicalities, well, he did this, but he didn't do that, and she did this, but she didn't do that. When we start playing with technicalities, do you know what we become? Pharisees. We come out a Pharisee. Now, get this in your mind before you walk out of here we live in an age of grace we don't live in an age of technicalities we live in an age of grace everything everything we have done in the past has been forgiven grace insurmountable sin met with insurmountable grace We cannot unscramble an egg. Helen, can you unscramble an egg? We can't unscramble an egg. So what do we do? We start with the egg and we give it to the Lord. And we ask him to show us where we need to confess and repent and how do we start over in grace and then we focus on living in the holiness and the righteousness of God. That's why you're a believer, you don't ever, listen, you don't ever, ever need to walk around with a label on you that says divorced. Don't you do it. Because Christ is taking care of it and we walk in the knowledge we have today and we may learn something else in five years and think I should have done that five years ago but you didn't know it guess who took care of it? God I can tell you I can tell you that whatever you have done in the past is under the blood of Christ washed clean and we start from there are we gonna mess up again yep but his blood not only cleanses now but it keeps on cleansing our challenge is for our focus to be on him on him and once we learn to walk in that discipline then we're going to have a life of peace and joy and freedom that we never knew when we were over here trying to figure it out like these Pharisees and mark it off and check it off and don't do this resting resting in Christ I don't dare say do you have any questions it's like I told you we could spend three four weeks divvying through all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation But the purpose for marriage is that the world could see Christ's relationship to the church. And Christ has never walked away from the church, no matter what we do. Grace, love beyond measure. And to embrace and hold and acknowledge that grace going into the Easter season is an incredible thing to do. So we're going to love each other and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we are totally dependent on your Holy Spirit and your word to teach us what we need in each one of our hearts. Would you do that? And help us to recognize the grace and the mercy that you have given to us when we see the sins of the world held up to the holy perfection of God. There's nothing to do but fall to our knees and ask for forgiveness, which you have already given. And we thank you. We worship you, we praise you, and we are so grateful to be yours. Amen. God bless you.